Uh, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Gunjan and uh, I'm recording today's podcast with uh, Dr. Peggy Frewer, who's uh, a reader in anthropology at Brunel University, London. And we've been talking about Peggy's work with the uh, Adivasi communities in Central India, in Chhattisgarh, and also uh, the challenges of doing work in rural contexts and with marginalized, historically marginalized communities but also the impact of education on youth and childhoods. So uh, welcome back to the second part of the podcast. And thank you, Peggy, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, we ended the last part talking about young people's engagement with education and the community's demand for education and development. Uh, so could you talk a, a bit more in detail about, you know, youth engagement with education and its entanglements with work and livelihood in local community contexts, because there's a push for formal education and schooling. And you've spoken about the tensions between these global imperatives and, you know, the local practices. So there's a rejection, dismissal, um, but at the same time, uptake of this discourse by the community. So in the current global and national scenario, with an increased focus on skill development and vocational training, how are youth aspirations impacted? Uh, yes, very good question. And in fact, this is one of the kind of key uh, uh, sort of focal points of, of my ongoing research and indeed my monograph, which I think we'll be discussing um, shortly. But um, back to our, just returning briefly to our, our earlier, the earlier point about um, 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 education and, and development in this area and different perspectives on um on these processes um we can sort of apply this to, to your question here so local people are are very much aware of of the the sort of discourses around for example education being a good thing or the transformative potential of education um and these all of course relate to their their desire for an aspiration for um, a better future, their desire for um, for material goods, for uh, a more um, a more secure sort of livelihood, um, and they're aware that education and successful engagement with education can bring them these things. They're also very much aware, however, that given their marginalized status, and I don't mean well, I mean that in in in, in several factors. I mean, for example, they are marginalized as as with their status as Adivasi. Uh, scheduled tribe, uh, um, you know, status. Um, they're also marginalized as rural dwellers. They are marginalized as, um, in terms of their economic capital, um, they're marginalized because they lack connections. So, in terms of their social capital as well, so they're 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 sort of um, disadvantaged on on multiple fronts. But they see education, and by they, I mean I mean Adivasi families, but I I mean more specifically young people themselves. They see education, they see the drives um, that accompany um, educational initiatives, both from the government as well as from non-governmental organizations that promote the sort of value of, it, of education, um, both in terms of, of, of general schooling, primary, secondary, um, and higher education, but also in terms of vocational education and, and other educational sort of avenues that are increasingly available um, to these communities. So they they see these, they respond to them, they enthusiastically embrace them, 
by, for example, um, continuing on with their education as long as possible. Um, they get their certificates, they get their sort of extended certificates, their vocational study certificates, whether that's in sewing or computing or accountancy or mechanics. And then they fail to get a job and they fail to get a job because again of their marginality, they lack the connections that will allow them to get a job or that will facilitate uh, processes which will enable them to get a job. They lack the economic capital required realistically in, in many parts of India to um, pay the so-called donation, which will allow them to get a job. And so this becomes very discouraging and uh, this, this sort of cycle is repeated and it reinforces their broad view and understanding that while education is a good thing, it's not necessarily for people like themselves. And, and they stated just th this, this very sort of um, uh, kind of notion to them that this isn't, this isn't, um, it, it isn't for people like us, poor marginalized people. So what is the point of continuing to invest in this? Well, the point is some of them, very few, comparatively extremely few, but there are, there are always one or two success cases that, um, you know, kind of break the mold and do succeed and do translate their education into a sort of viable livelihood, non-rural livelihood. So they, they look to those very few success cases and say, well, it's, it, it is clearly possible um, if everything is, is, is sort of, you know, in, in, in one's favor, if they have the donation money, if a young person has the connections and they can kind of actualize these. But for the majority, it remains um, a, a sort of pipe dream. And it becomes a very kind of cruel aspiration, if you will, to aspire to something that is ultimately not achievable. And, and, and young people are aware of this. Um, it becomes very discouraging. So, so this is a sort of really fundamental problem or issue that, that young people, rural marginalized young people in particular, face. They have their, their aspirations are there. They have absolutely you know, high aspirations. Um, they embrace education for the most part. And then they see the outcome is not what they wish it to be or not what they were promised. The transformative potential simply isn't available for them. And so they resort back and, and return to more uh, uh, sort of dependable livelihoods. Um, and, and for most of them um, to this day, that is, uh, revolves in, in some capacity around agricultural uh, livelihoods. So paddy cultivation in this area um, or associated livelihoods. Um, so this can be very discouraging because it's precisely the desire and aspiration to to avoid or, or get away from the kind of grueling hard livelihoods or, or, or hard work that is associated with these kind of rural subsistence level livelihoods that young people embrace education and want and, and aspire to get beyond this. But the reality is um, they find it very difficult to do so. Yeah, another, I mean, another great point about education and I've written elsewhere about this as well, that education works both as a site of struggle and, um, you know, hope and possibility for young people in these contexts, because, you know, it is it is one of those sites that it is a site of deprivation and subordination, like you're talking about. Uh, but at the same time, the, the demands for um, formal education or skill development or vocational education and jobs is so so high there's such strong demands for education and also you know thinking of it as a side of inclusion and equity so um yeah that remains 
within these contexts and within the, you know the young people's sort of demands and aspirations that you've spoken about absolutely and so you've not only written about i mean education and its intersections with work livelihood and aspirations but i remember when you started the podcast you spoke about religion um as significant so because you're talking about the hindu and christian adivasi youth in the context that you were doing um research in and you having to sort of shift focus so how is religion and maybe if you can bring in gender because i know that you have uh, written about gender as well as significant in these navigations of everyday lives um, in rural communities and the adivasi communities more specifically uh yes so religion certainly in this area uh, where it's a mixed hindu christian rather hindu christian communities where i work certainly um does have a huge impact on young people's uh at, and others engagement with with education um with future livelihood opportunities um and this in fact this is what is sort of what my the current monograph i'm i'm, I'm hoping to finish very very soon is is really all about and trying to understand the different uh, uh levels and, and levels of engagement of, of of success that different communities um different levels of investment that they give to education so very briefly christian adivasi youth historically have engaged much more productively and successfully with education than hindu adivasi youth and as my research shows the reason for this is well broadly speaking not the only reason but broadly it's ultimately down to the church and the kind of social and economic capital that the, the church provides for its um adivasi christian flock if you will so um these these young people are being educated in the same kind of educational setting you know the state at um the, these these government schools they're not being privately educated and there's a lot of different kinds of private education that has that have arisen in since i began my field work but largely still um, most of the adivasi uh, youth children and youth at, attend government schools but it's it's how they access um the kind of connections that that the church can provide in the course of and after their education so they will provide connections in the way of um um different uh, sort of secondary school hostels say or jobs and possible occupational avenues whether that's driving or working as as domestic help or 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 working in some other capacity and and assisting them in in also carrying on with their education while they are engaging in these um in these occupations and providing further connections in terms of you know letters of 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 recommendation or connections into different spheres one young man in fact the driver of my moped from my phd days he uh he was successfully he successfully managed to join um the navy because he this was about uh, five or six years after i completed my my field work because he managed to make a connection through the church to a retired member of the navy who'd retired back to this part of Chhattisgarh where I work um he'd cultivated a relationship with this man did some work for him um and this man ended up um activating his own connections back in the navy um through letters and through his own you know own connections and and managed to get uh, this young man um you know into into the navy so he now currently he 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 lives with his young family who are from the village in mumbai uh, and that's again through his church connections so he was supported in terms of his education 
um, and, and he was a very bright lad as well. So he was, you know, advised to go to a certain secondary school that was some 15, 20 kilometers away. Um, he was linked up to local uh, Christian families in that area and then sort of uh, activated these, these connections through to, to the point of, of gaining a, a, a career in, in the Navy. Um, so Christians have an advantage in this way, Christian Adivasi youth, um, um, in, in terms of actualizing and, and utilizing their the very sort of powerful social and economic um, capital provided by the church. Hindu Adivasis do not have that kind of uh, sort of ready-made network, if you will. Um, at least it, 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 it isn't as, as sort of, uh, I suppose, powerful or useful as yet. Now, there are numerous Hindu organizations operating in the area, including very much foremost um, the RSS, which has, uh, you know, provides a lot of educational and, and, and cultural, but mainly educational possibilities uh, in terms of this uh, Saraswati Shishu Mandir. And they are, um, and, and nursery schools related to the um, uh, Shishu Mandir and, and so on. And they are very much, um, they support the, the um, and, and encourage rural Adivasi families to send their children to these schools um, and provide bus services and, and, and other means of support. The problem is these are very costly and um, very few Hindu families take up these opportunities, partly because they can't, they can't afford these. Um, the RSS and other organizations that, that Hindu youth might access are also, they're not in the same position to sort of facilitate future occupational career possibilities in the same kind of organized way, I suppose, that, that the church provides. Um, and so the, it, it is really down to uh, what my research is suggesting. It's, you know, uh, or certainly this is a huge part of it. It's down to the kind of different forms of capital and, and advantages um, that, that um, are available to Christian Adivasi youth in relation to Hindu Adivasi youth. And this makes a huge difference in terms of local people's investment in education. Christians can see that, okay, if I invest in this education up to and beyond class 12, I can then activate my, my church networks and I can, you know, potentially genuinely get a job out of this. Um, whereas Hindu young people and their families think, well, if I'm very, very lucky, possibly, but it's not likely. So I'm, I'm not going to invest in, in, in education. I'm not going to really, you know, in, invest all of the years and money into this. I can't afford to anyway. So we will educate our, our, our children up to maybe class 12, probably class 10. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, utilize this to our advantage. So, for example, um, seek a, a better spouse in a marriage proposal or, or you know, seek other forms of, um, of opportunities or use their educational status to, to, to navigate around different opportunities in that way. But... Um, but very broadly speaking, this is sort of a, a very important role that religion plays in um, in, in livelihoods and in education um, amongst these rural marginalized communities. You ask about gender. Gender is a very interesting variable here. When I first started out my, my fieldwork in this area 20 plus years ago, girls were not being educated much beyond class four. It was an investment was fully into to boys, particularly amongst the Hindu community, but also amongst the, the Christians. Girls were 
they will they would marry out um, and go and live with their husband's family uh, in in the kind of traditional patrilineal way. So there's no point really in investing in girls' education. Now this has changed radically over the last two decades with educational initiatives um, being plowed into and invested in girls' education in Chhattisgarh and elsewhere in India. In the form of scholarships, stipends, and other incentives, girls are now becoming educated up to and beyond class 12. In, uh, and boys uh, often drop out now of school um, from schooling around class 9 or 10 because they're not supported. There's nothing in it for them. Equally, they know they're not going to get a job. They're not going to get that coveted um, place. They can't afford the so-called donation. They don't have the connections. And so back to their kind of pragmatic view of what's the point of getting educated beyond this. Girls um, are supported. It, it's financially um, sort of incentivizing for them to carry on through education. They get a stipend at the end. They get a bicycle. They get... Um, an ongoing monthly stipend if they carry on of only a few hundred rupees, but this makes a huge difference for families in, in this area and living on the, on the poverty line. So we're seeing a real shift in terms of, you know, a demographic demographic shift in terms of education levels. Um, and again, this is translating into aspirations becoming uh, more ambitious amongst girls, um, particularly and at, in the very least in terms of their marriage. So that it, it, it's having an impact on the age of marriage, which used to be on average 14, 15 in this area. This has gone up to 18, 19, 20. Girls are refusing to get married until after at least their class 10. They're using their education as a negotiation, as a means of a negotiation to um, push back their marriages. Um, they're also using their educational status to seek and demand a more educated spouse so it's, it's having a huge impact in many, many uh, areas. Um, and, and the full impact will be very interesting to see in, in the next generation and in the next um, sort of 10 or 15 years. So a very kind of hot topic for research for those out there who are interested in, in such things. Yeah, and that's another, I mean, very vital point that you make about paying attention to context when you're doing the kind of work, the anthropological work that you're doing. and. Uh, the contingency of the context where, I mean, the intersections of um, these axes like religion, gender, and ethnicity become so, so important. Absolutely. In understanding marginality that, you know, that you've spoken about earlier on. Which brings me to the next question, uh, uh, Peggy, before we sort of end, you know, go to the final part of the podcast, uh, which is about the role of the state, uh, the work of the state in this current social political and the context and these ethno-religious um, relations in the context of the Adivasis because again you've spoken about the colonial relationship the colonial histories which are very significant in these post-colonial contexts but also the post-independent states carrying forward similar policies of exclusion at the same time um, how rural communities view the state as the provider of um, services and goods and services of development, the provider of education. So what are the implications? What is the function of the state um, in this context and the implications for social inclusion and social mobility of uh, rural youth and communities? Uh, yes, the state is a very powerful entity and is, is present and visible in the village in terms of, in terms of everyone from, say, the Patwari, very very local state official 
to uh, the um, uh, block and district level, uh, those who work distributing, um, you know, ration cards, distributing identity cards, um, distributing um, um, the, the goods and and supplies every month, whether that's kerosene or sugar or rice. So the state is very visible in that sense. Um, the state is also visible in a more in a more perceived negative or frightening sense, and that's in terms of the police. Police are to be feared. Villagers don't trust the police, and they are um, uh, whenever a, a police uh, a car or van is it, you know, drives into the village, um, people become very very worried. Why are they here? Who's done what? What's the reason that brings them here? So there's a sort of the, the police serves as a as, as a sort of benefactor, one to you know rely on, or sorry, the state serves as a benefactor, one to rely on, one to depend on in terms of the goods and services it provides, but also one to be very very wary of, um, in terms of how, again, these marginalized rural people in particular are are, are treated and and regarded. This is such a complicated question, Gunjai. I'm not even sure where to begin in terms of, you know, the, the state also controls. Um, land and access to land and, and is very punitive when access to land, forest rights um, uh, um, and, and, and cultivation rights, when these are curtailed. Um, and these, these are amongst people who are, are very basically simply wanting to earn a livelihood and, and the kind of complex rules around who can access what parts of the forest and for what reason are sometimes very, very confusing and 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 perceivably irrational for for these people. So that, that that's that's a kind of um, ongoing negotiation as well. Um, but then there are very laudable programs. For example, the initiatives around education, the initiatives around some of the medical drives, um, the educational drives in terms of 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 health and medicine. The village now has a full-time resident nurse, for example, and, and the provision of, of medical care is is vital to the kind of ongoing health and survival survivability of the of, of members of the village. Um, but ultimately, I, I do, you know, returning to some of the things I've already stated, it, it's ultimately down to their marginality and disadvantage and broad structural poverty that that sort of drives their relationship with the state, drives both the way they embrace certain initiatives as well as the way they um, kind of fear or, or are quite mistrustful of others. Um, and understanding the continuing marginality is, is again, what, what my and, and other people's research is, is ultimately um, sort of all about. Yes, I mean, again, uh, you know, the contradictions in the presence and the role and the function of the state in this context and how it produces these multiple affiliations and alliances so to speak and there's constant the navigations of you know with the state as well now strategically the communities have to ally with the state but at the same time there is state as you know the police or the army or you know other things so absolutely and they're very they're very aware of these contradictions yeah yeah very um you know wary of 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 the sort of place and role of the state in their line mm. they also mm. know that it's a kind of it's a necessity they can't avoid it yeah. they have to work with it as as you say they have to it's a kind of ongoing process of of negotiation yeah absolutely 
And now coming to the end of the podcast, uh, I mean, I had two final questions. One was about the the research project that you've been a part of, um, you know, on young people's experiences with schooling, education systems and learning outcomes. You wanted to share that sort of key findings um, because it was a cross-country project. So, and you were part of the India team, but also, you know, the project took place in other places. If you want to share on that. And then something about the upcoming uh, monograph, which you have referred to earlier on in the podcast. So your monograph on uh, education aspirations and social mobility and the future um, research projects and directions that you will be taking from here on. Yes. Um, so first, the, the, the project on education um, aspiration and learning outcomes in remote rural uh, uh, um, settings. So this is a project that's continues that's ongoing um the, the actual grant the project itself the research itself has come to an end but we continue to to work on the material to publish on it and so on so this was a project that um comparative project of taking sites in india laos and lesotho rural uh rural sites um i led the india team which worked in chattisgarh my my colleague roy husman from the hague led the team in laos and my colleague nicola ansel uh from uh, Brunel University, London, led the Lesotho team, and Nicola was also the PI on the project. So this project was was, was again attempting to understand um, the relationship between education and young people's aspirations, um, uh, broadly speaking, and how how do their aspirations, what role do young people's aspirations play in their educational engagement on the one hand and what does education do and how does it impact upon young people's aspirations on the other so we were looking at um sort of these sort of broad issues what we found i mean it, we've uh, come across we, we've got a lot of empirical data we have a lot of findings we're still sifting through them trying to understand them and, and working through them but we what we found kind of i can share with you here broadly speaking is what we found actually quite fascinating and um, not entirely surprising, but rural marginal, marginalized youth across, well, certainly these three quite different on the one hand and, and ultimately quite similar on the other, these three different rural contexts. So rural villages in Laos, Lesotho and India, what we found um, was that in terms of their educational engagement, young people, children and young people aspire for essentially four or five main kinds of uh, sort of occupations or futures namely teacher police nurse and um, and military so these young people in all three complete very very different uh, sort of uh, contexts country and cultural linguistic contexts are all aspiring for very similar futures and so we're, we're digging deeper into this and we, we dug deeper into this and and we found that the kind of the curriculum in all three places really revolves around, um, on the one hand, revolves around, you know, promoting these sorts of futures, but also young people's, children's experiences on the ground in their, in their homes, in their villages, they have access to, and they are aware of these, these kinds of people, teacher, police, nurse, and military. So they, they know about visiting the doctor or the nurse. They know about teachers who they meet in school. The police isn't a, you know, regular or irregular presence in the, in the village as is in, in different contexts, the military. So they're aware and they aspire for um, uh, the kinds of futures that they that are visible to them, both pedagogically in their, in their curriculum, as well as um, in their everyday lives. 
So one thing that's come out of this is our kind of um, determination to to seek to broaden young people's awareness of the the kinds of other futures that potentially they could access that go beyond these sort of four main kinds of futures to try and expose them to different occupations, to expose them to more accessible occupations. Um, while teacher, nurse, police, and 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 members of the military, military are very respectable occupations and very kind of um, secure and and worthy occupations, they're hugely inaccessible for the may, for the majority of rural marginalized youth. So our idea and our you know d- d- our, um, in terms of the kind of research findings and, and how these might lead into policy interventions is to to uh, create and, and encourage and and help to set up different programs that would uh, broaden awareness and, and and allow for exposure to to multiple different occupations beyond the, the four I've noted here um, and th- through different means through through the curriculum to start with but also through visiting an actual physical exposure to these sorts of to, to different um, careers whether that's um, you know, kind of urban-based careers in, in 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 the media or in or in journalism, or um, in in the, in the hospitality industry or or healthcare. There are multiple kind of possible avenues that young people could could strive for if they were made aware of these, or more rural-based sort of um, um, careers or occupations or futures around agricultural production or um, um, other rural sort of um, livelihoods. So that was an interesting and, and um, finding in terms of um, noting the the huge aspirations that young marginalized people have for a similar kind of future across these different cultural settings. Um, we're also we're looking at other other issues as well, but you simply must watch that space in terms of our publications um, gradually coming out. Um, I'll just go straight into the into the monograph I'm working on, which relates to this research, of course. And I've been working on this monograph, which is provisionally titled Education, Aspiration and Social Mobility in uh, Rural India. And again, I'm looking at um, mainly distinctions between Christian and Hindu communities in relation to educational aspirations, um, accessibility and attainment and understanding and analyzing and, and um, discussing different reasons, historical, cultural, economic reasons that go into and that try and explain the different um, um, engagement, different levels of engagement between these two communities. Again, these communities from the same village, from the same region, um, and, and, and villages in the same region are all, um, you know, officially categorized as marginalized, rural, under the poverty line. They're all BPL. Um, they all have ration cards and so on. Uh, but broadly speaking, one community engages more successfully with education and the other one doesn't. And so um, there are some interesting and complex and very important historical cultural reasons for this. And this is what the monograph is, is um, trying to understand and, and analyze. Um, Thank you so much, Peggy. I mean, that's really, really fascinating work. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading uh, the monograph and it's out and, you know, the other publications from the project that you mentioned. Very, very vital um, work. And thank you for sharing with us, you know, the work on rural lives and with the marginalized communities. You're welcome. Also, 
specifically with the Adivasi communities in India and the impact of education on, uh, you know, young people's aspirations and youth and childhoods, which I'm sure will be of interest to the members of, you know, the Critical Childhoods and Youth Studies Collective and beyond. So thank you again for um, joining us and sharing with us. We're looking forward to uh, more conversations and reading more of your work. Thank you very much, Gunjan, for this uh, opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking to you and it's been a, a, um, fascinating for me as well to have this discussion. And I look forward to, to future discussions as well.